Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I'm Greta Johnson. And we are so excited to be back with new episodes, especially because our special guests today are some of the most exciting space-related humans that, like, exist in the universe. Is that fair to say, That is the most fair. (laughs) This is not even hyperbole, right? No. This is astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson and astronaut Jim Lovell. And you got to talk with both of them when they were in Chicago a few weeks ago. Yeah. So I wasn't here for this. I need you to tell me all of the things. This sounds amazing. Okay, so all my space nerd dreams came true on one (laughs) afternoon in the sunny city of Chicago when Neil deGrasse Tyson, we found out, was going to be in town because he was getting the Lincoln Leadership Prize from the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library Foundation. Good folks who were presenting him with an award. And the person who was going to present him with the award was a fan of his who he'd never met before. Well, someone named Captain Jim Lovell. Who, if you're wondering, why do I know that name? It's because, yes, that is the guy. That Jim Lovell. That is Jim Lovell, the one who made sure that Apollo 13 got home safely. The one who Tom Hanks plays in the movie. That's Jim Lovell. (laughs) He's 80-something years old, and he's sharp as a tech, and he's a big fan of cosmos and space, obviously. And so he wanted to introduce Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson now is in Chicago and has never met Jim Lovell. And he's kind of excited watching them fanboy out about meeting each other for the first time with Neil going like, oh, my God, it's Jim Lovell. And Jim Lovell going, you're the guy from Cosmos was just the most delightful, wonderful thing to see as an interaction maybe ever to see two people who just respected and loved each other so much meet for the first time was really, really lovely. And then to get to talk to both of them about space and science and all the things. This was a big day for Trisha Bobita. Yeah, man, I was just about to say, like, you not only got to witness this, like, kind of historic meeting of the minds, but then you also got to, like, sit down and interview each of these people. Are you just done? Like, is this mic drop for you? Obama out. (laughs) This was a life goals. Check it off the list. This is a bucket situation. This is a bucket situation for sure. Okay, so before we actually listen to the interviews, though, in case there are those humans out there who happen to not know who these people are, I mean, we talked about Jim Lovell, like, ran Apollo 13. But can we do a quick run-through of all of the things Neil deGrasse Tyson has done before we get into this conversation? Oh, my gosh. Okay, so Neil deGrasse Tyson, (laughs) if you aren't aware is the host of Cosmos, A Space Time Odyssey on Fox and the National Geographic Channel. It's the reboot of the Carl Sagan show from the 80s. He's written lots of books. I own all of them. (laughs) They're on a very specific shelf in my apartment. They're really great, accessible books about space. He hosts a podcast that I love called Star Talk that is also a TV thing now. He's had cameos on all your favorite nerdy TV shows from BoJack Horseman to Brooklyn Nine-Nine to Batman vs. Superman and The Big Bang Theory. He's just he's just the best nerd. He's just one of the very best. You know, as Mindy Kaling says, Best friend isn't a person, Danny. It's a tier. Best nerd isn't a person. It's a tier. And Neil deGrasse Tyson is in the tier of best nerds. So for you, sure. you did a really good resume run through. We should also mention that he is an astrophysicist. Just oh, to yeah. make sure people know. And that, runs the Hayden know. Planetarium in New York yeah, City. Like, like dude legit. Has, yeah, yeah. And if you don't know, now you know. Okay, good. All right. Let's do it. <laughs> 
So, Mr. Tyson, it is an honor to speak with you. I Neil, wear, I, Neil, I wore my Einstein shirt for you nice. today. But I have to say, there were a lot of space T-shirts to choose from, which I thought you would appreciate that I had a, a bevy of options this morning, as you are someone who likes to wear your love of space as well. There's not many ways a guy can do it. It's a tie and that's it. Maybe tie, vest. tie or vest, yeah, and, not and tie and vest, maybe. No, yeah, no, I use one or the other. It's an or, either or, yeah. <laughs> so you're here in town in Chicago receiving a prestigious award from the uh, Abraham Lincoln Library Foundation. And I wonder if, you know, we went back and looked at Lincoln as not just the president, but as maybe a scientific mind, would we find a scientific mind in Abraham Lincoln? Uh, I think it's not so much the science mind that's the issue here. It's, do you have a curious mind? And that can lead you to all manner of discovery. So all children have curious minds. So in that sense, all children are scientists. They're born that way. So... Lincoln, who was largely self-taught, as I've come to understand, you can only become self-taught if you're curious about everything that you don't know about. So in that body of knowledge would be scientific things, discoveries made. We think of modern times as a great era of scientific discovery, but so too was the 19th century. Many great discoveries were made. We were very much in the middle of the Industrial Revolution. And that came along with not only scientific discoveries, but technological achievements. The telegraph was being perfected. These were great discoveries of the day. And if you were curious, you would be celebrating that fact in your own way. He knew enough about this reality to, in 1862, put into place the land-grant college system in the United States. Arguably one of the most successful things we've ever done as a country. Well, it's up there. If you make a top 10 list, it practically democratized higher education. It focused on uh, farming as an important reality and how you can bring science and technology to that to feed the masses. That enables a higher population to be sustained. That was 1862. 1863, what does he do then? He signs into law the creation of the National Academy of Sciences. Oh my gosh. This is the body of scientists whose only job, well, they have their main jobs, but as a member of the National Academy, their only job is to advise the government, the executive branch and the legislative branch, on all the ways that emergent discoveries in science may impact policy and how you run the country. So he had that kind of foresight. In a year that he clearly had other priorities. There were things on his mind. There were things on his mind. 1863, you might remember, was the Gettysburg Address and the Battle of Gettysburg. So I, as sort of the next installment of this award, I would learn just recently that I'm the first scientist to be given this award. And I'm happy to bring the scientific attention to President Lincoln that perhaps people never thought uh, would go his way. I think a lot of people know as sort of a shorthand for Lincoln, Team of Rivals. It was a popular book title and, and this idea that he surrounded himself with people who disagreed with him to try to become smarter. And I just wonder, in this moment, what do you think are the ways that we can encourage people to do something I've heard you mention is important before, which is not view being able to say, I don't know, as a form of weakness? How do we get over that idea that admitting when we don't know something is a flaw? It goes way deeper than that. It's not only admitting or celebrating when you don't know something, but also recognizing the value of failure. And no, you don't want to fail doing something that 
has already been done where people succeeded, you want to be able to fail at something that has never been done before and recognize that the day you never fail is the day you are no longer on the frontier of anything. So we should celebrate the experiment. And every scientist knows that most of the time you design your experiments, things go wrong. But the press, the journalists sort of wait around until the experiment comes out perfect. Then they write a whole article about it. Look at this great discovery. Well, how about the 20 other people who tried it and failed at it? How about the 20 other times that that scientist tried it and failed it? Where's, where are those stories? And uh, once that is understood, especially in the K-12 through system, I think we will have a completely different country, a country where we have higher tolerance for experiment and recognizing that that itself is the path to discovery. What you just mentioned reminded me of when I was watching the film Hidden Figures recently, that it showed that work, that process, the math that was wrong over and over and over again until it was right. And I wonder if you think that there are ways that we could be doing better to make that science visible now and to put a spotlight on not just the astronauts who deserve the spotlight as well, but the folks who are behind the scenes doing the the hard science and the hard math that doesn't get them necessarily a, a parade. So I have a slightly unorthodox view on that. So what you're saying, if I can reword your question, what you're saying is, should we all have more exposure to episodes such as that? Episodes in history, in that case, American history, uh, during the golden age of space exploration, so that going forward, we will come to embrace it. And I'm saying, they didn't have such exposure, yet they were doing it. Well, why? Because the country was involved in a major science and technological project. And you didn't need special programs trying to convince people that science was interesting or that you should have some more science teachers. That was happening on its own because we were driven by this major mission of not only competition, especially with the Russians, but ultimately the mission to go to the moon. So I submit to you that we can show old movies about how people used to do it all the time. But they didn't need to see old movies about how they used to do it. They just did it. And I would assert that in modern times, if we engage in a major, what do they call them, Sputnik-driven goals, that the United States can transform itself once again from a sleepy country to an innovation nation. It's an innovation nation that drives not only dreams and aspirations and what tomorrow will be, but it also represents the engines of tomorrow's economy. So even if you don't like exploration, you think it's a waste of money, uh, presumably you don't want to die or die sooner than you have to, so that would be medical advances, and you don't want to die poor, so that would be economic gains. Economic gains not because you changed one tariff or another, but because you actually innovated something new, and everyone had to now beat a path to your door, America's door, to figure out how we did it and why. Do you think the excitement recently around getting to Mars is going to be at least maybe a part of what you're hoping for, a, a prize at the horizon that people are innovating to try to solve problems around? No. Not enough? <laughs> not exciting enough? No, again, I'm slightly unorthodox here. So if you ask any space person, they're not going to give you this answer. So you can discount what I'm about to tell you because it doesn't match everybody else's. Or you can say, well, maybe he's onto something. I'll leave that up to you. I think you're probably onto something, but go on. 
there's an entire multi-generation of people in America who are certain we didn't get to Mars by the 1980s, as had been projected after we went to the moon in 1969, because we didn't have the political will or the charisma of John Kennedy or the, just na- give me your list. And I maintain that that is not why we did not get to Mars in 1980. We didn't get there because that was never in the cards. It's the people who delusionally, I wrote a whole book on this, but the title of the book I wrote was Failure to Launch, The Dreams and Delusions of Space Enthusiasts. And the publisher said, no, we can't publish that title. It has the word failure in it. Oh my gosh, that's terrible. So that it got completely cleansed to become Space Chronicles, Facing the Ultimate Frontier. The point is, if you think we went to the moon because we're explorers and it's in our DNA, and it, then you think it's natural to think you'd be on Mars in the 1980s. But that's not why we went to the moon. We, it's not. We went to the moon because we were at war. And when you're at war, money flows like rivers. And you can spend on things that you would have a hard, if not impossible time, justifying at any other time. If we want to beat the Russians, it was a contest of who's the better way of doing this, of being a country. The same speech where Kennedy said, put a man on the moon, put him safely to Earth, that's chiseled in the granite in Kennedy Space Center, Florida, next to his bust at the front entrance. Is there any writing on the rest of the wall? There's plenty of tiles. You can chisel other stuff that he said. Like in that same speech, Yuri Gagarin had just come out of orbit at the time he gave that speech. Would not utter the man's name. Yuri Gagarin, the first astronaut in space. We didn't even have a ship that wouldn't explode on the launch pad. with a, and, and Russia's already been into space. In that same speech, he said, if the events of recent weeks are any indication of the impact of this adventure on the minds of men everywhere, then we must show the world the path of freedom over the path of tyranny. It was a battle cry against communism. They could have put that on the wall, did they? No. In fact, they could have abbreviated and just said, kill the commies, go to the moon. All right? Did they put it up there? No. That's part of the cleansing of this. So you think we went up because we're explorers. It's not why we went up. So if we're going to go to Mars, it's because we're at war with somebody who decides to put military bases there. And I, I joke, I, I want to go to China and, and tell the, the head of China, could you just leak a memo? It says, you want to put military bases on Mars? Doesn't have to be true. Just leak it. Then we'll freak out. Yeah. Then we got to have one too. Then we got to have one too. Because we remember ourselves as pioneers of the space program, but in fact, we were reactionary, not proactionary, if such a word exists. At the day, we were reacting to everything Russia was doing. And then we go to the moon before them and we say, we win. When they beat us at everything else first satellite, first non human animal, first human, first space station, first woman. First black person, or a Cuban, a, a dark-skinned Cuban. They, they invented the rocket formula, for goodness sake, more than 100 years ago. But we planted a flag, so we win. So we win. We win. We got the movers. We win. Okay? That's how we thought. And once we win and they're not there, of course we're not going to Mars. So if we go to Mars, it's because we have a military reason to do it, or there's an economic reason. Economics is a big driver of major funded projects in the history of our civilization. So... I would claim that, no, there's no oil on Mars or diamond mines. Uh, what the economics of it would be, if you go to Mars, you will stimulate a level of innovation in your culture that will drive your economy for generations to come. And that becomes the economic argument. And the, the return on that investment, I'm not talking about spinoffs. I'm talking about a cultural rewiring of how we think about who we are in a society and what goals we place for ourselves. 
That will be kind of a firmware upgrade in how we think about what we do with our free time. And the day that happens, the wealth of this nation is assured for centuries to come. If you have another way to grow wealth, fine. But this will, you got to, yeah, you spend, the, you spend the money to do this, a lot of money. But we're talking about the return on that investment. And if you're a country, you can have a longer time horizon for the return on that investment than a private company can who has the quarterly report and the annual report. That's why the great discovery missions of the world have been nations funding it. Later, you had private enterprise, okay? Columbus was Spain. Spain sent Columbus. And, you know, here's the trade winds and here's the hostels and the friendlies. Then the Dutch East India Trading Company comes because you can quantify those risks and quantify the return on the investment. So yeah, you need countries to do this. Neil deGrasse Tyson, thank you so much for joining us on Nerdette. Okay, I love Nerdette. Do I get to keep one of your mugs? Yes, please. I want a mug you that says Nerdette on it. You want. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so All much. All right, excellent. Neil deGrasse Tyson, ladies and gentlemen, what a brain that person has. Can I just say that when you're sitting really close to him and he's being that smart, it's almost like the energy of it is hitting you in this weird way? Osmosis. I don't know. It just it just sort of fills the room that he's in. Yeah. His brain power is really stunning. We'll be back with more Nerdette in just a minute with our conversation with Jim Lovell. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. All right, guys, now we're going to hear Trisha's conversation with Jim Lovell. This guy is 89 years old, right, Trisha? 89 years old. This is the pilot who was there for Apollo 8, Apollo 11, and Apollo 13. In Apollo 13, the movie, the Tom Hanks character, that's who we're talking about. The guy who made sure that those astronauts got home safely, which, by the way, at the time, he was the only American astronaut who had been to space and flown that many missions. So if all hell had broken loose like it did in Apollo 13 to anyone else at the helm, Who knows what would have happened, but Jim Lovell was cool as ice and got everybody home safe, and now he's sort of aw shucks about it, which is really adorable. You know, Trisha, it's really funny because often when we record these conversations, like we both have to remind each other to slow down because we're just so excited, but I think in this context, it's actually very appropriate that you just keep talking as quickly as possible. Because I'm just so excited because astronauts. It's perfect. Astronauts. So I'm very excited to be speaking with you today, and there's someone else in my life who is very excited that I'm speaking to you, and that's my six-year-old nephew, Max, who is very excited about all things space. And so when he heard I was talking to a real-life astronaut, he wanted to know, because he's a little worried about this, is it all right that he wants to be a chef and an astronaut? Can he do both? Oh, naturally. After all, you have to eat. 
and you have to eat it in space as well as eat here on the ground. So the more you know about cooking and food, and uh, and then also combine that with uh, space flight and uh, celestial mechanics, I guess you can do both equally well. All right, that'll be good news for him to hear. I imagine that the NASA Food Lab has been making some leaps and bounds since your day. I'm guessing they're eating a little better at the space station than you may have on your missions. The food during my Gemini and Apollo flights, uh, I don't think that Matt would like to even give that a try. <laughs> uh, they were uh, very uh, elementary. Um, most of the stuff was what we call freeze-dried food that you normally take on camping trips, and then you'd add water to it. And uh, when you put it with peas, they seemed they were flat, and then they popped up to be spherical again. So, you know, it was pretty good. <laughs> uh, the bacon bites were not too bad. Uh, the crackers with cheese, they put, I think they put wax over it. It was awful. Oh, no. <laughs> I wonder, considering the space race and the other tech advancements you've seen, is there something you're surprised that we haven't done yet that when you were first starting out, you assumed we would be here by now or we would have this invention by now that you're just surprised hasn't happened yet? Well, naturally, since I was in the one of the original you know, uh, programs in Gemini and early back in the uh, 60s, I thought by 2017, we'd be a lot farther than we are now. In fact, I was wondering whether I'd still be alive around to see what was going on, and I'm kind of disappointed that uh, you know things have slowed down. But I would suspect that they're going to be perking up again. You think, just in terms of the physical distance, did you think we'd be to Mars by now? Did you think... No, I never thought we'd be to Mars. Mars is a lot farther than a lot of people want to admit. <laughs> uh, I thought we'd be back to the moon by this time. That's where I thought we'd be uh, because of uh, we only barely scratched the surface on the Apollo programs, and uh, it'd be nice to really have a program that would get us back there in, with such comfort and reliability that we would uh, think of a routine. How did dealing with the life and death situations you were in as an astronaut give you perspective in the rest of your life that followed? How did it affect how you viewed problems or challenges going forward? Well, it was quite an experience, and I, I think that uh, you have to have a positive attitude. I, fortunately, that's what I had aboard at the time when the explosion occurred. I, I didn't think about uh, you know getting into a, a, a curled-up position and waiting for some miracle to happen. I figured that I had to figure out what I had with me and who could help me at the mission control team. And we had a radio, so we would work one crisis after another until we got the percentages up to where they looked profitable. We just actually a few weeks ago had Tom Hanks on the show, and he's a nerd about typewriters. So we were talking with him mostly about typewriters. But I wonder, do you ever go back and watch the movie? And, and what does it feel like to go back and watch it? Is it nostalgic? Does it just remind you of everything that got wrong? Or how does it feel to watch that film? Well, every once in a while I go back and watch it. Uh, of course, when it first came out, I, I, I one time I sneaked into the uh, theater and sat in the back row to see what everybody thought about it. Uh, but uh, it, I think it was a very good movie, well done by the, the movie crew. And, uh, you know, you think about movies and uh, that uh, it's sort of strange, but they were a very, a very dedicated group, not just Tom, but all the actors that were there and, they, uh, uh, and uh, you know, the, uh, the people that worked on it were, were quite dedicated to make sure it was a good job. If you could just decide, and it was only up to you, would you go back to space one more time? 
Well, I would go back to space, but you got to realize that my age right now, I don't think anybody would take me. <laughs> uh, but, of course, I, I missed landing on the moon. But in one respect, uh, not landing on the moon was probably the best thing that ever happened to NASA. Because uh, the first two landings and the, f and the flights before that, that, that looked like it was so routine that people were not uh, getting interested anymore and not realizing the amount of technology and work that had to be done to make those flights uh, safe. And so when we had the accident, how we recovered from the accident, how the technology of uh, you know, thinking outside of the box and, and, and doing things that they weren't prepared to do originally and to do it. I think that was really a, a high note in, in NASA's uh, history. Certainly one that we'll all never forget, I would say. The new film, Hidden Figures, has brought into the spotlight a lot of the people who are a part of NASA's history who were previously almost completely unknown. And I wonder... What do you think we could do to highlight the work of some of those more behind-the-scenes folks along the way as we're doing science? You know, how could we get more people to be familiar with the Katherine Johnsons of today? Well, I think that Hidden Figures actually brought out some of the things and, you know, that people of all color were uh, actually <laughs> doing a great job. And we, we called all those ladies at that time uh, computers. Right, they were the computers. Yeah, they were computers. They were actually had running calculators before they got the computer in. But I think if, uh, if the news media, and I'm saying the news media would concentrate on not just astronauts or flight directors, uh, but look at all the people behind them uh, that were responsible for putting flights into space, I think that would give a general picture, a positive picture to uh, the people that are paying for it. We have something that we always ask our guests on NerdAt to do, which is to give our listeners a little bit of homework. So I wonder if there's something that you would recommend that folks read or watch or do if they've heard our conversation and they want to just know more about something that you find inspiring or, or think people should be aware of. What homework would you give to a NerdAt listener? Well, if they're interested in science, obviously, uh, to look up things that pertain to that, especially spaceflight. There's lots of, of uh, articles and books on spaceflight. And actually, if you they really get involved, then they should turn to Cosmos and listen to uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson because he can explain astronomy and cosmology in, in terms that even I can understand. <laughs> Excellent homework. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Take care. Speaking of Neil, in just a minute, we have homework from him, too. This is so much Smart Space homework. Nerdette in space. <laughs> She's still going, folks. So Jim Lovell's homework is to watch Cosmos, which is Neil deGrasse Tyson's television show. So now we shall listen to Neil deGrasse Tyson's homework. So if I were to give uh, homework, the homework would be that there are problems society faces, civilization faces, that cannot and will not be solved awaiting the next app on your smartphone. We have problems in housing, in food, 
in health, in poverty, in military conflict, in so basically uh, unrest in the world, problems with energy, climate change. There's got to come a point when we take fewer selfies and step out there and ask, what kinds of major industries need to be revamped so that we can assure a peaceful, prosperous future for us all? Ask not what your cell phone can do for you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> ask what you can do for civilization. And so it, it's the seduction that I only have to sit here and hold this device in my hand. That's a seduction that we have all... Uh, all of us are attracted to it. I'm not out there solving these problems. I'm trying to help others. So I'm guilty as I am accusing others of not doing this. I'm just saying that, you know, transportation, uh, you know, healthcare, all of this, major issues. Somebody needs to be thinking about that. Otherwise, we're not going anywhere. We'll be staring at the asteroid. We're staring at our, our smartphone when the asteroid comes. <laughs> oh, no. That's a dire thought. Yeah. But one that we will... And we'll have, it'll be a great Google page on how it will render us extinct. Oh. <laughs> but no one would have built the machines to actually stop it. Yeah. Neil deGrasse Tyson with the slacker homework, huh? All of us are slackers. Yeah, that is some high-minded notion right there. I think it's really excellent homework, though, to think about... As you're listening to a podcast, probably on your smartphone, oh, yeah, that we can spend time with technology that makes the world a better place or that shuts us off from the world. And I think everyone needs to spend a little time recharging. So yeah, play Angry Birds for a few minutes if it clears your head or do whatever clears your head for a few minutes. And then let's get to work because as Neil said, there's no shortage of problems that we could solve with technology if we put our minds to it. Yeah, you know, I would almost like to add to that a homework assignment, which is to give yourself a cell phone break. You know, like maybe take a minute from screen time and think about some other stuff while you're doing it. I think it I think it helps all of us to kind of just like disconnect a little bit, you know, but do it only after you finish listening to this podcast. Right, right, right. Don't do go it right now. now. <laughs> you can go in just a minute. But first, we just want to remind you that this show from WBEZ Chicago is produced by us. I'm Trisha Bobita, along with Greta Johnson and Candice Mattel. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer, and our intern is Brady Guy. If you're listening, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow us on NPR One, or listen on the WBEZ app. You know what else is super helpful if you subscribe to us, but also if you leave us nice stars on Apple Podcasts. Many thanks to Drea12345, Court01770, and Bezor Flegmon for the nice reviews. Y'all are too kind. Bezor is clearly the one putting the most creativity into their username. You know who's not? Dre12345. Well, I mean, come on. Let's, Phoning let's in the username a, a little bit. You know, I have to say, my, to my college email address was John Segum. Which That's always, J-O-H-N-S-E-G-M. It was like most of your last name and then your first two initials for some reason. And so when I saw Flegmon, it really made me think of, you know, just phlegmy stuff, I guess. Yeah, it just sounds like I wonder if it's actually phlegm on or if it's Flegmon. I don't know. Okay. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We are at Nerdette Podcast, wherever you are interneting. And our theme music is by Pontington Bear. Do your homework. Do it. In space. Space homework. Space homework. Yeah, you got it. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO.
Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.